So we've arrived at the end of the first day of the retreat. Um, Often the the first few days are the most difficult because uh, we come from, often from very busy lives, uh, into a situation where Everything is very simple, and uh, there's not really an awful lot for us to do. And uh, what is offered for us to do is, at first, it doesn't seem to be particularly interesting. Uh, Just sitting hour after hour, uh, focusing on the breathing, uh, being with the the mind, the restless, agitated mind, uh, struggling, trying to find some kind of peace and happiness. It can sometimes be quite um, quite difficult. So I congratulate you all on being here still, <laughs> surviving the first day, um, because I know it's not it's not easy. And I think it's helpful for us to uh, reflect on uh, why it is we, we put ourselves through this. You know, often we, we come on retreats because it seems like a good idea and you know, somebody else came and had a wonderful time and last time we came and it was wonderful and, and then maybe we arrive and we find, well, it's, you know, have, I, have I made a big mistake? Is it really quite so wonderful? <laughs> How is it going to be? How am I going to manage? Uh, Is there any point in in all of this? I think we have to acknowledge that that much of our human existence is is quite mysterious. there's many things that we can't really know, we can't really understand or appreciate fully. We have to just more or less take them on trust. And uh, there's a particular teaching of the Buddha, which uh, I think for most of us is, is, is something very much that we have to take on trust, which is the, the teaching about rebirth. We talk about uh, rebirth being reborn, you know, coming back over and over again. Uh, with a whole succession of human bodies, well, mostly human bodies. Sometimes I think, according to the scriptures, one can get reborn in, a, in, a, in an animal body if one's very, very unlucky, unfortunate. Uh, but just this whole idea of, of coming back over and over and over and over again. And there's a, a teaching that the Buddha gave that I I very much like to to contemplate, which is his um, description. And what he says is that, you know, it's because of not understanding four things that we all have to um, keep on trudging around this endless cycle of rebirth. I just have to keep coming back, keep repeating the same thing just because we haven't fully understood certain basic facts of our human existence. And he talks about it in relation to himself as well. He says that you, as well as I, 
have had to trudge through this endless round of rebirths, had to keep coming back over and over again. But in his final birth, uh, where he became enlightened, he actually came to an understanding of these four basic essential facts of human existence and through understanding these he was able to free himself. He was able to arrive at a point of understanding where he wasn't helplessly drawn in to yet another human lifetime. Talk about getting off the wheel. Uh, uh, freeing himself from the round of samsara. So during this time of retreat we have um, the opportunity to uh, begin to, to contemplate these four things, begin to uh, examine and perhaps um, increase just a little bit our understanding of what we call the Four Noble Truths. Um, that will perhaps help us uh, in our own human existence to arrive at a point where perhaps, <laughs> if we play our cards right, maybe we too can get off this wheel. Maybe we too can uh, avoid uh, having to have another of these human bodies. Or at least perhaps we can uh, cut down the number of human existences that we have to undergo and they, they say that you know, if, if you can actually become a sotapanna, if you can actually uh, have a clear understanding of the path, even if you can't, you know, even if you don't fulfil it totally, um, at most you'll only have to have seven more bodies. <laughs> seven more bodies. I don't know if this is encouraging or not. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, let's 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 have a look at what these these no noble truths are. These essen essential facts of human existence. Uh, that the Buddha was uh, spent many, uh, gave many, many teachings on, pointed to repeatedly in the course of his uh, life after his enlightenment. The first one, I think, probably after, after today is pretty obvious to, to everybody, which is the noble truth of suffering. Uh, that life as a human being is difficult. And as I said earlier on, there are, there are different kinds of difficulty. Ajahn Chah used to talk about natural suffering and unnatural suffering. And the natural suffering is just the uh, discomfort that uh, comes as part and parcel of having a human body. You know, that there's certain aspects of it that we can't actually remember, or most of us probably can't. Maybe some of you can remember, but I, I can't remember actually being born. But I can imagine that it must have been a pretty painful, pretty frightening process. We can just take a little time to think about what it must be like being born. You, know, you spent uh, eight or nine months comfortably in a very kind of cozy environment, <laughs> snug, cozy, all, all one's needs supplied. Um, and they say that depending on how, how the mother is, that actually has quite a powerful effect on how the um, process of, of um, development is for the, for, the, for the fetus, for the baby. And you know, if the mother is, is happy and at ease, then uh, the, uh, one's, one's development for those nine months is a, is a fairly uh, peaceful, happy, comfortable time. Uh, if on the other hand the mother is in a state of stress and anxiety, um, then perhaps it's not so easeful. But certainly one's had nine months in a, in a fairly relatively secure uh, environment and then suddenly uh, there's the time of birth which I'm told is extremely uh, physically demanding, both uh, for the child as well as for the mother. A tremendous struggle to get out. And then having got out, just the um, uh, shock of arriving in an environment where the temperature is changing all the time, where 
uh, one's every need is not uh, easily being met uh, necessarily where one has a lot of uh, very harsh uh, physical impingement I can imagine that it must have been quite difficult quite quite um, frightening, quite uncomfortable so we have the, the stress, the difficulty of birth uh, which is part and parcel of our human existence every one of us was born Having been born, the body is then subject to uh, just routine discomfort. It gets hungry, it gets thirsty, it gets cold, it gets hot, it gets tired. Uh, these are things that, that just happen uh, quite regularly for all of us. You know, we've, we've learnt how to uh, take care of ourselves so that we actually don't often, you know, we, we can actually s exist without really noticing these things very often. Um, have this wonderful central heating in America, <laughs> uh, the hot and cold water, uh, pleasant bathrooms so we don't have to really, you know, everything happens very easily, very smoothly, and uh, for most of us, uh, most of the time, there's this plenty of food and drinks and you know we, we can often take care of ourselves without really um, actually having to experience much hunger, much thirst, much physical discomfort. Um, during this retreat time however there's probably uh, times that you will experience certainly hunger and probably thirst and uh, other forms of physical discomfort and this is very useful to actually, um, as a way of, of helping us to, to appreciate what having a human body entails, just in the ordinary way. Then there's sickness, uh, there are all kinds of accidents that can happen to the body. Uh, I know myself, I, I tended to feel quite invulnerable, quite invincible, until I got knocked off my bicycle. <laughs> and then suddenly, you know, I realized that this thing is actually quite, quite frail, and quite, quite fragile. It can easily be hurt, it can easily be damaged. You know, we can eat something that disagrees with us and have, you know, just having to, be, having to vomit. I mean, that's a very unpleasant uh, experience. Uh, having fevers, having diseases of one kind or another, having things go wrong with the body. This is something that, that I'm sure we've all experienced at one time or another. Then the aging process. Yeah. I think probably almost all of us have begun to notice that process happening. Uh, noticing that you know, maybe we don't remember things quite so well, maybe we don't see quite so well, hear quite so well, maybe we can't get around so easily. This is something that uh, we can expect. This is a, a natural part and parcel of having a human body. And just like if you have a, a motor car or uh, any, any, anything, it, 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 after a time, it wears out. I mean, I think they are beginning to manufacture things that don't wear out, ever. <laughs> but, but most things, uh, sooner or later, wear out. And these physical bodies um, are no exception. They, too, wear out. And, and I mean, apart from things like hips and... Um, what other bits? Corneas, you can get corneas. <laughs> uh, and I, I know one or two people who've got new livers, but um, mostly spare parts are, are very hard to come by. <laughs> <laughs> this is important to contemplate. 
and then we die, the body dies. And uh, that's a very major change that uh, we go through as part of our human existence. This is something that will happen to all of us at some time or another. None of us knows when, none of us knows how. The one thing that we can be sure of, that it will happen. So I, I'm not trying to depress you, <laughs> but more just um, to, to contemplate the, the natural unsatisfactoriness of human existence. That we really can't do anything very much about. When we are fully conscious of it, though, we can at least, um, in a sense, be prepared. We can at least avoid having unrealistic expectations uh, of our human existence, of our own bodies and the bodies of those that we love. We don't expect them to last forever. So we can appreciate them, we can enjoy them, uh, we can delight, we can love. But uh, we have to learn how, we have to uh, appreciate that uh, things are going to change. And the Buddha encourages us to, to really reflect on this very frequently, to help us to avoid uh, unrealistic expectations, help us to avoid getting caught up in, in attachment, in demanding that things be other than the way that they are. Which brings us on to the unnatural suffering that Ajahn Chah used to talk about and the Buddha himself also spoke about. And this unnatural suffering has, has an origin. There's a reason why we suffer. Uh, and I think perhaps I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit, uh, which will help us to understand what the unnatural suffering is. Unnatural suffering arises because of desire, because of wanting. And according to the way that the Buddha talked about it, he talked about three different kinds of wanting. Wanting to get, you know, wanting to have something that one hasn't got. Wanting to be, wanting to exist, wanting to become. And then wanting not to exist, wanting to get rid of. Just wanting to, to, to sort of annihilate ourselves. So we suffer because of wanting. So this wanting is endless um, until we really understand it, until we begin to let go, to abandon this wanting, this desire. So today perhaps some of you will have experienced a certain amount of wanting wanting to be peaceful, uh, wanting to feel comfortable, wanting the bell to ring, wanting a cup of tea, uh, wanting to feel that you're doing all right, to feel that you understand that you can practice. And I'm sure there were many other kinds, many other moments of, of wanting something or other. Uh, right now I can't think of other examples, but I mean, it, 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 it's infinite, <laughs> different kinds of wanting. So wanting to get something. But sometimes we want, we, 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 um, like wanting security. Uh, you know, wanting material possessions, wanting prestige, wanting status, 
and wanting to, to be with people that we really like, wanting to get away from the ones that we don't like. Uh, then wanting to become, wanting to exist. This is a very um, difficult one really to appreciate um, unless we meditate. And uh, we'll be talking about this quite a lot, this desire to exist as, as, a, as a separate human being, as a separate personality, to be somebody. And I don't know about you, but this is one of the things that I've suffered most over, this desire to be, to exist. We're all of us uh, arrive as human beings on this planet. We're equipped with a, with a body and with a mind. We talk about the five khandhas, the, the body, uh, feelings, perceptions, uh, conceptions or uh, ideas, concepts, and consciousness. This is, part and, you know, this is something that um, each of us has. Um, but the problem is that we tend to identify with it, we tend to claim it as our own, rather than seeing it as being just like the body is just part of nature. Uh, the mind, the aspects of consciousness, are um, conditions that arise, that change moment by moment. There isn't actually a permanent, lasting me in there. There's a permanent last, uh, there is a me that, that I create and I, I put it together and I have this idea of who and what I am. Now, all of us do that. We have an idea of what we are. Then we also have an ideal of what we should be. <laughs> and we put a lot of energy into kind of comparing, you know, what we should be with what we think we are and uh, trying to get them, trying to measure them up. And every now and again, we actually manage to, to be what we think that we should be. There's sort of these fleeting moments. And then we start worrying we might get conceited. <laughs> and uh, we, so we, we, we mess it all up. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's a kind of a hobby. It's, it's a human pastime to be continually creating this sense of who and what we are, and comparing it with our idea of who and what we should be. And then we start noticing each other. And uh, we get ideas about who and, who and what and how everybody else is. And then we start comparing ourselves with everybody else. And we think, well, I'm not as good as her, but I'm a bit better than her. And I'm not doing too badly compared with him. <laughs> and uh, then we get jealous, and then we get competitive. And our whole um, training in this culture is about comparing and about competing and about uh, just trying to measure up to some kind of ideal. And it's a very, very painful process. Even when we actually succeed, even when we feel that we're the very best and we've, we've kind of reached the ultimate pinnacle of success, it's a very fragile kind of moment because it's only a, it's a, it, it only lasts for a very short while before we topple off and uh, then we get plunged into a dreadful kind of despair. <laughs> and it just goes on and on. Very interesting, there's a section in uh, the Suttanipata, which is a collection of teachings of the Buddha that I, I very much like. And uh, it comes up quite, quite frequently in, 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 in a number of chapters in this particular collection of teachings where the, the Buddha says, you know, if you think that uh, you're uh, worse than somebody else, that's, that's wrong view. If you think that you're better than somebody else, that's still wrong view. If you think you're the same as somebody else, even that is also wrong view. 
But in reality, there's, there's no me and there's no anybody else <laughs> as a lasting entity. That these are just things that we keep creating, the mind keeps creating in an effort to be, to exist. This second kind of desire that causes us so much suffering. And then the third kind of desire is the desire to not exist. <laughs> the opposite, the desire just to kind of blank ourselves out uh, or to get rid of, to get rid of ourselves. You know, just to have the, you know, just to kind of, you know, when we're sitting here in meditation and the mind is just going on and on and on and on and on about some trivial matter, you just kind of think, oh, why can't you just shut up? <laughs> why can't you just stop? And uh, we sort of go through times of actually wanting to give ourselves a lobotomy just for a bit of peace. <laughs> or we uh, take refuge in alcohol or drugs or sleep. And just find some way of escaping from the whole ghastly business. Just because we haven't really understood uh, that there is a way to end this suffering. Uh, we don't have to annihilate ourselves. That we can, this is, this is a much more skillful way of doing it. So to recap slightly, the first noble truth, there is suffering and that this suffering has to be understood. The second noble truth, that there's an origin to this suffering. And the origin of suffering is desire, desire to get, desire to get rid of, desire to be, to exist. And this origin of suffering has to be abandoned. We have to actually abandon, we have to let go of these desires. Now, letting go doesn't necessarily mean getting rid of. You know, sometimes we think, well, I've got to just get rid of these desires. I've got to, you know, I've got to stop having these desires. You know, I, 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 I really, I'm going to practice in order to get rid of these desires because I can't stand having these desires. Now, listen carefully. Can you not hear yet another desire? <laughs> so it's like, adding, to our, adding to, uh, to our desire, adding to our suffering, rather than, uh, when we think of abandoning, it's actually just letting go. So letting go is not necessarily getting rid of, but it's allowing it to cease. Now sometimes, you know, I use quite a, quite a strong visual image, like, there's, there's grasping, which is like holding on, wanting to keep. And there's, let, there's trying to get rid of, which is like trying to throw away. But letting go is much more like a, just a sort of a gentle relaxation, an acknowledgement of things as they are, like when we're caught up in some kind of desire. You know, we can, we can just recognize that that's des that desire is there. So letting go, detaching. We're no longer clinging, we're no longer invested in trying to get rid of the desire because we realize that that's futile. But we also realize that like everything else, desire ceases when we stop engaging with it, when we stop holding on to it, when we stop recreating it. This is very important uh, from the point of view of our meditation because we tend to think we've got to get rid of um, all our thoughts. We've got to make the mind be quiet and peaceful. We've got to get rid of all our um, unwholesome, unskillful uh, desires. Now, in one sense, this is true. You know, like liberation is a, a state of peace, a state of ease where there isn't desire. But if we uh, if we don't understand the proper means, the proper way of doing it, uh, we just get ourselves in a terrible tangle. So letting go is actually just uh, making the heart, making the mind very, very large. You know, so that the desire is there, the thoughts are there, everything's there, but we're, we're, we're allowing it to change and cease on its own. We're creating the right conditions for it to change, for it to cease. 
This requires a kind of, a kind of trust, a kind of faith. Uh, because we're conditioned, we're, we're trained uh, to um, engage with things. You know, we walk into a room and it's a complete mess, and so we, uh, you know, if we, if we want to uh, have a clear space in the room, we, 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 we have to actually get busy. We have to kind of pick things up and take them out and get out our mop and bucket and start cleaning. You know, this is, this is uh, what we have to do. Uh, in a sense, the work of meditation is like that, but uh, it's a different kind of uh, cleaning that we do, different kind of means that we use. And we'll talk about this some more later on. So the third kind, the third noble truth is that, that suffering ceases when we relinquish desire, when we abandon desire. It also ceases, uh, or we, we diminish the amount of suffering that we experience in our lives uh, when we understand the reality of our human existence, when we appreciate certain facts of our human existence because we no longer have unrealistic expectations of life. We no longer look for happiness, look for security in the things that can never fully satisfy us, that can never um, provide that security. We come to an appreciation of impermanence or change, that everything in the material world even the most long-lasting plastic, even Mount Everest, um, is changing. It can't last forever. It's, it, it's, it's not a, a permanent, enduring um, phenomenon. In fact, if we kind of look at the micro, if, if we get into kind of nuclear physics and such things, we see that it's all changing in a much more dynamic way than we could possibly um, imagine. So we begin to appreciate change, both in the material world and uh, in our own minds. Things change much more rapidly if we let them. <laughs> Sometimes we uh, do try to, we, we, we do kind of through perversity tend to uh, keep things going for a lot longer than we need to. We, 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 uh, well, uh, this is what I've noticed in my own practice. I manage to suffer um, a lot more than I need to just through not really um, uh, enabling change to happen. Uh, but it does. Change does happen. And this is where um, we can see like the, the, the um, world of conditions, the material world, the world of the mind, we can uh, see them in contrast to the, the refuges that I spoke about this morning, um, which uh, we can see as being unchanging, which we can see as being secure, uh, always there as, as a reference point uh, for us, always there as a place of safety. So, uh, as we come to appreciate the refuges more and more through our practice, through our contemplation, we begin to, and, and the more they become real, we begin to live our lives in a way that feels much more secure, much safer, uh, in a way that brings a sense of freedom, a sense of happiness, uh, that is very different from the kind of happiness, from the kind of freedom uh, that uh, people seek in the material world. And like people try and earn lots and lots and lots of money, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars so that they can have the most fabulous house, so that they can, you know, have whatever food they want whenever they want it, so that they can have the most wonderful, exotic, expensive clothing that they can have, you know, all kinds of gadgets. Um, and they sincerely believe that if they have enough money, then they can buy a sense of security for themselves and for those that they love. 
their families, their children. I don't know very many wealthy people, very many very rich people, um, but I, I have a, a suspicion that unless um, people actually have a bit of wisdom, um, no matter how much money they have, uh, there isn't really a, a great sense of ease and happiness. I do believe that it's possible to be wealthy and happy uh, if you're enlightened. <laughs> you know, if you really understand how to live skillfully with, with, with your possessions, with your wealth, how to, how to use it um, in a way that is uh, beneficial for, for, for oneself and for others. You know, I'm not saying that, that wealth is necessarily harmful or bad, uh, but it does require an enormous amount of, of wisdom, of understanding, uh, to be able to, to, to live uh, with uh, a lot of wealth. And similarly with uh, a medium amount of wealth, and similarly with no wealth at all. Uh, basically, um, true happiness comes when we um, look for security in a totally different direction then it doesn't matter if we've got a lot of money or nothing at all. Uh, we can still feel secure, we can still feel happy, uh, we can still live our lives skillfully. So, uh, suffering ceases when we abandon desire, and it also ceases when we, or, or it diminishes, when we really appreciate the limitations of this human existence, when we appreciate uh, the fact of anicca, impermanence, uh, dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of anything that exists in the material world, and anatta, the um, uh, impersonality, the fact that there's no enduring uh, selfhood uh, in this mind and body. We'll talk some more about these three characteristics on another occasion, but um, when we really understand these, um, we um, we can live uh, with, without suffering in the same way. And the fourth noble truth is the noble truth of the Eightfold Path. Now sometimes uh, it can all seem a bit airy-fairy when we talk about letting go, abandoning, suffer, uh, abandoning desire and, and so on. And the Eightfold Path is just like the means. Very simple practical guidelines uh, that are to be uh, developed in our, in our lives. And the Buddha gave uh, clear instructions, clear guidelines as to how to develop, how to live this eightfold path um, in order to, to bring us uh, to the point of perfect freedom and happiness. It's uh, presented in a particular order, um, but uh, often the Eightfold Path is represented as a wheel. Like just behind me, there's the, um, this wheel here, just below the shrine, which is um, a very um, commonly used depiction of the Eightfold Path, the eight spokes of the wheel representing the eight different factors of the path. And the reason for this is because they all work very much together. You know, if you really develop one aspect of the path, the others um, naturally uh, begin to, to come into, into focus, come into play. So, um, the Eightfold Path begins with right understanding, right view. So just understanding the noble truths, understanding the limitations of human existence. Uh, these are aspects of right view. Understanding why we suffer. It's an aspect of right view. So right understanding, right intention or right thinking 
we'll talk about this some more later on as well. Right thinking, right speech, right action, right livelihood. These are all like what we do with our bodies, with our speech, how we, how we conduct ourselves. These are related to the precepts that we spoke about yesterday. It is right action is like refraining from causing harm, uh, taking advantage. And actually cultivating action that is helpful and kind, motivated by kindness, motivated by compassion. Similarly with right speech, you know, speech that is um, truthful, honest, speech that is supportive, helpful, speech that brings people together, brings understanding, rather than speech which divides, causes unhappiness, friction, and stirs up uh, antagonism between people. Right livelihood, livelihood that, you know, way, ways of uh, earning our living that are, that are scrupulously honest, uh, that don't take advantage, don't cause harm to others, you know, either other humans or animals, um, that, are, that are respectful, uh, kindly, realizing that sometimes uh, for some people this, is, this, this can be very difficult um, to find a livelihood that really feels right uh, because very often you know even things that sort of seem right when you first start off you know you kind of scratch below the surface and you find that actually it's, it's taking advantage of somebody or it's causing some to harm to some 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 someone or uh, and that I realize that it's actually quite challenging to find uh, a livelihood that is really completely right. But um, at least to do the best one can, uh, to find, um, to, 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 to earn one's living, to earn one's livelihood in a, in a skillful, wholesome way. And if you do have the good fortune to have a livelihood that, is, um, that you really feel very comfortable with, um, as you reflect on it, then that's, that's a great blessing. And to be able to live without any sense of remorse or regret about, about one's life. So right speech, right action, right livelihood, this, these all come under the, the category of sila, you know, how we live our lives. And then the last three, right effort, um, right mindfulness, and right concentration or right collectedness. These are very much to do with um, like our meditation practice. Um, like you can also divide the Eightfold Path into three, sila, samadhi, panya. So how we live our lives, um, as I've said several times already, how we live our lives actually has an effect on how our meditation is. If we live skillfully, if we make effort to, to avoid causing harm, then uh, the mind actually settles, collects more easily. Like this retreat is, a, uh, is structured in a way to, to um, support right concentration. You know, we're, we're, we're living in a way that we're not causing harm to others. Uh, we're not speaking, ideally, or if we speak just very little, uh, so we, we're not, um, we don't have to remember a lot of foolish things that we've said, except I, I have to, but you don't. <laughs> um, we're not having to remember uh, unwholesome, unskillful things that we've done. Um, one of the things that you will find, probably, I mean, having said that during this time, is that the, uh, you will find that if there are um, things that you've done in your lives that you regret, that you probably will find them coming up into your meditation. And uh, so you have the opportunity to uh, resolve them in some way, in just to practice like self-forgiveness, kindliness towards yourself. So this, this actually points to the uh, how, how the Eightfold Path actually does work together. We can't really expect 
the mind to be very calm and peaceful. Um, if we've spent our lives taking advantage of others, hurting, harming others, or living in ways that harm ourselves. Because when we sit down to meditate, they come back, we have to remember. So a lot of meditation is just really patiently um, bearing with the memories of our past foolishness. So this is where we need a tremendous amount of loving-kindness towards ourselves, tremendous amount of forgiveness and compassion towards ourselves. If, on the other hand, we have the good fortune to have lived our lives from a very young age skillfully, wholesomely, then our meditation is going to be much more peaceful. And when I was in Thailand recently, I, um, I saw quite a few very young monks, like in Thailand, often uh, young boys, you know, sort of age you know, eight, nine, ten, uh, their families will send them to the monastery to, to live as novice monks. And uh, some of them actually stay, they, 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 they're, they're novices, and then they stay, and at the age of 20, then they can take the higher ordination, they, they can become monks, and uh, they, can, they can live as monks for their whole lives. And uh, I must say, having you know, it took me quite a while before I came upon this teaching, before I... Uh, became a nun, so I, I, I managed to do quite a few unskillful things, <laughs> unwholesome things that I, I have to remember. And uh, I feel a sense of real, um, we have this word mudita, real gladness, happiness, uh, at the good fortune of these, these young kids who um, are able to uh, come upon a very skillful way of life and uh, live their lives without doing um, a lot of foolish um, unwholesome things, so they don't actually, they, you know, they, they can expect to have quite a peaceful uh, meditation. Uh, but for most of the rest of us, I'm sure we, we will probably have a few, a little bit of a rough ride, just because of the fact that we, we haven't had the good fortune to uh, uh, be protected in this way. We, we, most of us, I'm sure, have done some foolish things in our lives that we'll have to rem remember. So, right mindfulness, right effort, right concentration. So, if we live skillfully, then the mind will settle. And if the mind is settled, then what will arise quite naturally will be insight, understanding, right understanding, which is the third factor of the path. So, we come round in a circle with right understanding, understanding of the nature of our human existence, there's naturally um, an inclination to live skillfully, because we see the harmful results of living unskillfully. So if we live skillfully, then the mind will settle. And so it goes round and round and round in a circle. That's a very skillful circle, really wholesome circle. Um, gradually we, we refine more and more until eventually uh, we arrive at a point of perfect understanding which is what we call Nibbāna. <laughs> so these Four Noble Truths are the basic teachings that the Buddha gave uh, in order to help us to escape from the round of rebirth, uh, to escape from being helplessly pulled in uh, to one birth after another. We find a place of perfect ease, that is not about finding perfect ease on the outside, perfect ease in the world, the perfect situation, the perfect body. We find a place of perfect ease that is uh, in the un world of the unconditioned. So the Buddha, uh, the thing that made him a Buddha was this perfect understanding, uh, which allowed him to uh, live um, with no more rebirth. So although he, um, after his enlightenment, he continued to have a human body, he um, certainly experienced sickness, he certainly got old, he lived to the age of 80, um, and he, the, the, his body died, um, there was understanding, there was wisdom, there was clear seeing, and um, 
his life was one that no longer uh, created the conditions for any kind of rebirth. So each of us also has that potential. Uh, and so um, we, can, we can just contemplate these noble truths. I'll just quickly recap and then I think that will be enough for the evening. So noble truths of suffering and the origin of suffering. Noble truths of the cessation of suffering. Uh, when we actually realize the ending of desire, letting go of desire, and the noble truth of the Eightfold Path, uh, which we need to develop in our lives, which we can develop in our lives. Um, and gradually, little by little, as we develop this path, we can expect to experience increasing freedom, increasing happiness. It doesn't happen all at once. It happens little by little. And the Buddha, he talked about, uh, he, he likened uh, the teaching and the practice to, to the ocean. And he said that, you know, it, it slopes down gradually and in the same way the path develops gradually. So we need to be very, very patient, little by little. Just like the dawn, like tomorrow morning we'll be able to contemplate dawn and right now it's dark. When we come into the sitting it'll be dark and then gradually, gradually, gradually it gets light and we'll be able to see uh, more clearly. And in the same way with our practice, gradually, gradually, we come to see more and more clearly, to understand why we suffer, and to live our lives in a way whereby we suffer less and less. We'll still have to get old, we'll still have to get sick, and we'll still have to die, uh, but we don't have to suffer about it. So I offer this for your reflection this evening. <coughs>